Well, today we are beginning a brand new series and uh, really excited about it. It's called Review, Letters to the Church. And so, um, and so before we jump in today, I, I actually want to start by asking you a question. All right, so here's a question I want you to think through with me is this right here. If you had it entirely your way, what would your ideal church look like? All right, so I want you to think about that for a second. If it was entirely up to you, like you can have it your way, what would, what would your ideal church look like? Like what would it include? Right? What would it what would it exclude? What would be your your preferences if you kind of had those there? So think about that for a minute. Uh, now, of course, I, I get it, right? Maybe for some of you, you're kind of new to the whole church thing, or maybe someone invited you for the first time, or maybe you're watching it online and someone sent you the link and you're really not a church person. And so your answer to this question would be, uh, your ideal church would be no church <laughs> at all. And so I get that. So that might be some of you. But I think for many of us, uh, I think that maybe when we think of this question, maybe some of the things that come to our mind is maybe we think about things like style, right? We have certain ideals as far as how the church would operate stylistically. And so maybe we think of, uh, like some of us might think we like a church that's less formal. Or maybe you're a person who would think of something like, I like it more formal, more traditional. Maybe someone would say less traditional, right? Or maybe for you, when you think about this question, maybe you think about music. Maybe that's where your mind goes first, right? So you think about, uh, you know, a kind of genre of music, or you think of uh, the length of singing, how many songs you do in a set. Or maybe for some of you, you think of the volume of the music. That might be something that comes into your mind. Or maybe for you, when you think of this question, the first thing that comes in your mind is you, you think of the teaching. And so maybe you think of the kind of the sermon part of it, kind of like what we're doing right now. And maybe for you, you're like, yeah, I have, I have an ideal of how I'd like that to kind of, kind of look, you know, and how that might be. Or maybe for you, you think of the pastor. That's what you think of. And so you think of the guy delivering the message. And so maybe you prefer that, uh, like at this church, that the pastor is extremely easy on the eyes. Maybe that's what you think. Or maybe for you, you don't like that because it causes you to stumble, which I understand, by the way. Or maybe for you, you, uh, you actually prefer a pastor that's humble which apparently is not this one, right? And, and you think about those things. Now, of course, I'm just kind of goofing around a little bit, but I'm making this point. I think all of us know that there's a lot of opinions and ideas about what the church should or should not be, right? And I think there's a lot of ideas and preferences about what a church or should, uh, should or should not do. And, you know, I think, um, honestly, this has probably always been the case. As long as there's been a church, I think this has been the case. But I think maybe even especially today, maybe especially in the times that we live in right now, because think about it, uh, we live in a really unique time because we live in the era of the Internet. And because we live in the era of the Internet, we live in the era of online reviews. And so we, uh, we review anything and everything that there is to review. And so kind of everyone has kind of become a critic, right? And it's just sort of the way that things kind of are right now. In fact, I was thinking about this a while back. Someone, uh, actually a friend of mine, shared with me some actual Google reviews from actual churches in our country. You guys know this is a thing, right? Like people will go on and they'll review churches on, on Google. And so I wanted to share a few of those that I thought were uh, kind of interesting, some of them kind of funny. So here's just, these are some actual reviews, okay? So for example, uh, one person said this. They said four out of five stars for a church. And they said four stars instead of five because there was no worship after the service. And so again, kind of talking about what's your ideal church. For some people, they would say, well, I like things in a certain order, right? It's kind of what this person would say. How about this one? It says two stars. Uh, there was no time during service I attended telling the congregation to greet those sitting 
near them. So you know how sometimes there's the meet and greet, like look to someone next to you, which I don't know if anyone's doing that right now. Apparently that's what this person wanted so much so that it caused them to only give two stars. How about this one? This person just said two stars, um, the Walmart of churches, Walmart of churches. And you know, it's interesting. I don't, um, I don't think I entirely know what they mean by that. And at the same time, I kind of know exactly what they mean by that. So I don't know, maybe they're more of a target church person or whatever. How about this one? I was distracted by the coffee aroma as I walked in, one star. Now, I don't know about you, I would, that would actually want me to give more stars. Here's one I thought was, I just thought was interesting. This person said, grr, I've never been there. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure this person doesn't know how reviews work and maybe that's what's going on there. Uh, I like this one. Uh, place is too big to worship and see the podium. Horribly crowded, the priest is always tan. And uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's a thing, but apparently there's nothing worse than a tan priest, according to this person, enough to give two stars. This one's my favorite. I just think this is the best. Three stars. The worship leader looked like he just got done mowing the yard. So I don't know what that means either, but I kinda kinda at the same time know what they mean. So okay, so to be fair, most of the reviews that are out there about churches aren't like these ones, but I think it does kind of make the point, right, that there's just a vast array of opinions and preferences that are centered around around the church. And of course, you know, I think with all the changes through the season, really a lot of those opinions and preferences are maybe even more greatly exposed than they have been, right? What what church should be, what church shouldn't be, what church should do, what church shouldn't do, how a church should respond, how they shouldn't respond. I think all of that is kind of maybe even more exaggerated in this time. And so the reason I share this is, is because in this series, what we're going to do is we're actually going to be engaging in a verse-by-verse -verse study of the one place in the Bible where we actually see Jesus Christ in many ways giving his review, his review of the church. And the place that we're going to be looking in the Bible is the place where Jesus Christ speaks to his church about his desires for his, his church. And, you know, I think, you know, here at Grace, we think that this passage that we're going to look at is so powerful and it's so important that we actually want to take an entire sermon series to actually work our way through this incredible passage of, of the Bible. So, so we introduced this series. I want to take you there. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and grab it with me. And if you would make your way to Revelation chapter 1. Okay, so Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to be going. If you got a Bible, go ahead and get there. If you're new to the Bible and uh, or whatever, Revelation is actually really easy to find. It's the last book in the Bible, so it shouldn't be very difficult to find there. And so Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to go. As you're turning there and as you're finding your way there or uh, on your device or whatever, uh, let me just give you a little bit of background uh, on Revelation and really on the passage we're about to read today. Okay, so um, some of you maybe have already discovered, like if you've ever read the book of Revelation, that it can be, it can be really confusing. And uh, a lot of what's in there can seem really bizarre. It's full of some wild imagery. There's some strange things that you see uh, throughout the book of Revelation. And oftentimes, quite honestly, Revelation is equated with the future. A lot of people think Revelation is all about the future and specifically about the end of the world, right? And so a lot of times when we think of Revelation, we think of cataclysmic, crazy, end of the world type of stuff. In fact, uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the title itself, Revelation, the actual name Revelation, actually comes from a Greek word, which is actually the first word of the book of Revelation. And in the Greek, it's actually this word right here. It's the word apokalypsis, apokalypsis. And you can probably tell just by looking at it, what English word we get from this. We get the word 
apocalypse. Apocalypse. So quite literally, the book of Revelation is the apocalypse. Now that's not helpful because today when we hear this word, apocalypse, man, we tend to think of some terrible and catastrophic things, right? A lot of times we think of storms, we think of plagues, we think of natural disasters, we think of wars, we think of zombies maybe come to our mind. And uh, in fact, just Google apocalypse, Google image it, and you'll, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But what I want you to understand is that in the first century, that this word, when they would have heard this word in the Greek language, um, they, would, they would have thought of it that less is something the way that we think of it. They would have thought of it as something more inviting and something more immediately relevant to their day-to-day -day lives. Because you see, the Greek word that, that, that we just looked at simply means this. It mean, it's apocalypse, but it simply means the unveiling. That's actually literally what it means. It means the unveiling. It actually is a term that would be used, the same term for lifting the cover off of a box or for uh, pulling the curtain back in a theater. And so really the idea is more, is, is less like zombie apocalypse and it's more like uh, looking behind the scenes of something that's happening, right? That's kind of the idea. And so here's what I just want you to understand. All I have to say this, so much of Revelation is concerned with not simply what's going to happen in the future. It does address some of those things. But actually, I would say even more so, what's going on behind the scenes? What's happening behind the curtain? And so Revelation is not just relevant for the future, right? But it's actually very deeply relevant to today. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we kind of go through this series. And so we're gonna do that. So let's dig into our passage. We're actually gonna begin in verse nine. Okay, so Revelation chapter one, verse nine, here's what it says. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so, so here I want you to notice uh, kind of right out of the gate that we're actually given some pretty important context. So we're told in verse nine, uh, not only who wrote the book of Revelation, but we're also told where he's writing it from. So who's the author? Well, he actually uh, introduces himself. He says, I, John, he identifies himself. All right, so John is the author, but that asks, begs the question, well, who exactly is this guy? Some of you might know if you're uh, kind of familiar with the Bible, there's actually a few different Johns that are listed throughout the New Testament. This is referring to uh, John, who was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. And so he would have been one of the 12 guys who was the closest to Jesus uh, on his time here on earth. In fact, we're actually told that among the 12 disciples, John was maybe possibly the closest of all of them. And the Bible actually calls him the disciple who Jesus loved. And so we know he was very, very close to Jesus. And not only that, not only was John uh, one of Jesus's closest disciples, but he actually was an incredibly powerful and influential early church leader. Uh, you may know this, John, this guy right here, actually authored five books in the New Testament. So he would have written the Gospel of John, uh, which is a eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. He would have written 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, which were letters to various uh, to churches. And then he wrote the book of Revelation. And so very influential. So John is the, the author. And I want you to notice here that not only does it tell us who the author is, but it also tells us where he's writing from. And so it says that he's writing from the island of Patmos. Now, let me tell you why that's interesting. Uh, the island of Patmos is a really small island. It's actually about 10 miles off the, off the coast of modern day Turkey. Uh, and uh, you can actually visit it. You can still go see it. Now, if you Google map it, you can find it. 
But what made this so unique is that this actually was a, an island that was used by the Roman government uh, as a place to banish criminals. And so the Roman government would actually banish sentenced criminals to the island of Patmos. And so here's why that's so unique. It's because John is telling us that he is writing as a sentenced criminal. And so he's kind of writing from an island prison. And that begs the really important question, right? What crime did John commit to get him here? And well, it's actually kind of interesting. There's some indication right here in the passage. He says the reason he was on the island of Patmos was because of the word of God and specifically because of the testimony of Jesus. So in other words, uh, it was actually because of his preaching and because of his influence for Jesus Christ that John was arrested and tried as a criminal and put on the island of Patmos. In fact, we actually know this. Church history explains to us that John was persecuted very severely because of his faith and because of his influence for Jesus Christ, because he would not deny Christ. And so because of that, he was arrested. In fact, it's actually interesting. Uh, we even know that there's early historians that describe that at one point they even attempted to boil John to death in oil because he would not deny the name of Christ. But apparently they, they failed at that. And so they banished him to the island of Patmos. And basically the reason they did that was to shut him up. They said, we're gonna limit his influence, we're gonna put him on this island, and he's gonna finish his life off there. Well, apparently that didn't work because on the island of Patmos, he wrote the book, he wrote the book of Revelation. So all that to say this, right? Man, you wanna talk about quarantine? John, John would have spent pretty much the rest of his life on this island, and he would have been in pretty much isolation apart from the other churches that were on the mainland. And I want you to notice what he goes on to say in verse nine. He says, I, John, and then he says this, your brother and companion in the suffering in the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So, so here's, what I, here's what I want you to understand, all right? During the time that John writes, things were very rough for Christians and things were very rough for the church. That's why he says, I'm a companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is ours in Jesus. And so this was, this, the time in which this was written uh, was most likely uh, sometime in the mid 90s AD. And this was during a time when things had gone from bad to worse for the church. In fact, there was severe persecution that was happening under an emperor by the name of Domitian. And he was notorious for persecuting Christians. In fact, it's estimated that under Emperor Domitian that he killed over 40,000 Christians in his lifetime. So I go into all the details, but just suffice it to say this, right? Here's what I want you to get. John is writing to Christians who were afraid, who were confused, who were discouraged, and were going through a very difficult time. They were harassed. They would have felt pressure to conform to the world around them and to abandon their faith. All right, so it was a tough time in which he's writing. Now, let's talk about us for a minute. Thank God we're not living in a time like that right now. For sure, for sure, we have a lot to be grateful for in comparison for those of us who follow Christ and who are part of the church. However, I do think that there is something in this for us, right? I mean, for all of us, I think especially for those of us who follow Jesus and are part of the church, we find ourselves in some pretty uncertain, uniquely challenging times right now. And, uh, and I think there's some similarities, not entirely, but some similarities that we share to the circumstances in which this was written. So John's writing through some tough times. And I want you to notice what he goes on to say. In the midst of this, in verse 10, he says this. He says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit 
and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll which you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All right, so check this out. He says one day on the Lord's Day, which by the way, the Lord's Day is simply uh, a way that they would talk about Sunday. It was the, the day they celebrated Jesus' resurrection. So he's on the Lord's Day, and then he says, I was in the Spirit. Now, you might be reading that, you might be thinking, what in the world does that mean when it says he was in the Spirit? Well, actually, this is a kind of a simple way to say that John is saying that what he's about to write was not a normal human experience that what, what he's about to write is something that happened to him that wasn't just a mental event. It wasn't just something that happened in his imagination and it wasn't just a dream that he had, you know, because he ate something that day that made him have weird dreams. And John, what he's gonna tell us here, he was brought by and he was empowered through the Holy Spirit to an experience beyond the normal senses. And basically he has this vision. Now, I know that might seem so weird and so bizarre to us, but let me just say that biblically speaking, we actually see similar visions to this and experiences like this in other places. So Ezekiel chapter one, if you wanna read that, you can see something similar. Daniel chapter seven, Isaiah chapter six, Acts chapter 10, all of those we see something similar. And so he has this vision and, and I want you to notice that in this he hears a voice. And what does the voice say? Well, the voice says, write on a scroll what you see, send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So, so here he, he says, um, this voice says, write this on a scroll what you see, and I want you to send it to these seven churches. Now, what are these seven churches? Okay, so these actually represent seven different regions that are in the province of Asia. And what's interesting is if you look at a map, you actually see that these seven churches almost form a geographical circle. So I'll actually show you, here's, a, here's kind of a, a very simple ancient map. This would be modern day Turkey. Here's where Paul was, he, or I'm sorry, here's where John was. He was on the island of Patmos. And you can see that the churches that he listed are listed in a way that it almost makes a circle. Most likely, this is a letter that would have been circulated to, to these different churches and it would have been read by uh, each one of them. Now, I know that um, that's a lot of info. I'm giving you a lot of info right now, but there's something significant that I wanna draw out here, and there's a reason I tell you that. Because I think what we see in Revelation, and this is so important, right? I want you to catch this, is that Revelation, and this is true for all of the Bible, but Revelation was first and foremost intended for a specific audience in a specific time within a specific region. And so I want you to keep that in mind throughout this whole series and anytime you read the Bible, before, because before we answer the question, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for me? We always have to ask the question, first and foremost, what did it mean to them? What did it mean to the original audience? And so a lot of times when we read Revelate, when we read books like Revelation, we're like, well, I think it means this and I think it means that. And the first question we have to ask is, what did it mean to them? And then try to draw it out from there, okay? Something else I want you to notice in this passage. I want, you to point, I want you to notice that if you have a red letter Bible, which if, uh, if you don't know what that is, a red letter Bible is a Bible where Jesus's words are identified in the color of red. It's, it helps you know when Jesus is talking. What you'll notice is that verse 11 right here is in red letters. And so the voice that's speaking, we're gonna find out, is the voice of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ himself speaking in 90 something AD, 
So this is the resurrected Jesus that we see speaking here. And, and what we're about to see here is that Revelation is going to depict for us a very different presentation of Jesus than John, or quite honestly, than many of us maybe are familiar with. And so check this out. He goes on. He looks to see the voice. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands, there was someone like the Son of Man, who was dressed in a robe that was reaching down to his feet. And he had a golden sash around his chest. And the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Oh man, that is, a, that is an incredible passage. Possibly the most incredible description of Jesus Christ that we have in the whole Bible. Now, I know for us, when we read that, that seems real strange, real weird. You know, Jesus has hair that's white like wool, a sword coming out of his mouth. You're like, what in the world is John seeing here? But I actually want you to notice something. I want you to notice the amount of times that John uses the word like in this passage. So he says his hair was white like wool, his eyes were like fire, his feet were like bronze, so on and so forth. And why am I pointing that out? Because I think you can almost see this, right? John is trying to describe to you something that there is no earthly language to fully explain. Right? So he's straining to find words to, he's like, it was like the sun. It wasn't the sun, but it was like that, like the radiant nature of the sun. He's telling us that what he experienced was unlike anything that we could uh, fully express or we can fully explain. And so let me just say that there's a lot, a lot actually, that we could say about this depiction of Jesus. There's so much incredibly powerful imagery that's used here. But suffice it to say this, all right, the whole point is uh, this picture of Jesus communicates to us uh, that he is in charge, that this is Jesus Christ in his glory. This is showing us that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the high priest, that Jesus is eternal. This is Jesus Christ, listen, in his resurrected state. Now hear me. This is Jesus Christ, even as he is right now. And that's the picture that he's giving us. I want you to catch that. And what's John's response? Well, notice this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I was a dead man, like I was dead. Now, this is interesting to me. I want you to remember, John would have been, you know, maybe the closest person to Jesus on this earth. He was deeply familiar with Jesus. He was one of his closest friends. Now, however, when he sees Jesus in his glory, it, he loses his footing and he falls down to his face at the feet of Jesus Christ. You know, I was thinking about this and no doubt, no doubt, uh, John probably had a lot of different memories and mental images of Jesus. Uh, John knew Jesus. He would have spent years with him. Uh, John would have seen Jesus feed the 5,000. He would have had that memory. He would have had that mental image in his mind. Uh, John saw Jesus calm the storm. He watched that, so he would have had that memory in his mind. G uh, John saw Jesus invite the little children to come to his side. He would have had that kind of that gentle image of Jesus in his mind. He would have seen Jesus wash his feet. He would have had this image of 
Jesus serving as a memory in his mind, he would have remembered Jesus on the cross. He would have had that image. The Bible tells us that John was there when Jesus was crucified. He would have seen uh, Jesus in his resurrected form. The Bible tells us that. He would have had all these mental images. But here's what I think is so interesting. Now in this new situation, a situation of great fear and a situation of great uncertainty, a situation of isolation and unknown, the Bible tells us that John gets a new vision of Jesus. He needed a new vision. He needed to see Jesus Christ as he is right now, right now. And let me just, again, talk about us for a minute, okay? Sometimes, for those of us who follow Christ, and I, I think for every human on planet Earth, I think what we need more than anything, more than even a change of circumstances, is we need a fresh vision of who Jesus Christ is. Now look, I don't know, I'm not sure what, you, what mental images come to your mind when you think of Jesus, but I'm guessing you have some. Like when you, when you pray to Jesus or when you think of Jesus, my guess is you have some thoughts that go through your mind. Maybe for you, you imagine like a picture that you saw um, in a storybook Bible, or maybe for you, you know, there's your grandma's house, she had a picture of Jesus or something. Or maybe for you, you have images like, you, like, like when you read the Bible, you think of Jesus feeding the 5,000 or Jesus hanging on the cross, or those are the images that you have. Now, 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 here's the thing. I want you to see in this passage that yes, Jesus served and Jesus washed feet. And yes, Jesus loves the little children and invites him to come to his side. And yes, Jesus hung on the cross as an expression of his love. Those things are all true. But also, what John's helping us understand is that he is also the first and the last. And he is the living one. And that he was dead, but he's alive now. And that he holds the keys of death in Hades. That he is the eternal one. He is the eternal one who created the universe and who defeated sin and holds the keys to death. In other words, he's the king, man. He's the king. He's eternal. And if we saw him in his glory, like John did, the instance we saw him, we would fall flat on our face before him. Yes, I was actually, um, man, I was thinking about this this past week, and it, was, it actually was, was blowing my mind a little bit, uh, because I was thinking, you know, Jesus is the first and last. That means that he's eternal. And I thought, because he's eternal, and the Bible teaches that, by the way, because he's eternal, that means that Jesus, Jesus has seen every nation and every kingdom in human history rise and fall. He, he was there for the rise and fall of Rome and every other kingdom and every other nation uh, throughout human history. Jesus Christ, because he's the first and last, he has witnessed and he has been on the throne through every global pandemic that this earth has ever seen. He has, he has seen and he has been ruling the universe through every election and political, political campaign throughout the short history of the United States of America. And even though nations have come and gone, and even though emperors and kings have risen and have fallen, all throughout history, people all over the world continue to worship him as king and as lord. And what was, listen, what's true about Jesus today is exactly what's true about him in this passage. This still holds to be the case today. And so, so what's happening again is man, Jesus is lifting the veil, and he, he's letting John see behind the curtain what's going on. So he's going to go on. Look at verse 19. He says, Jesus says to John, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So he says, I want you to write these things down for the churches. 
And this is what he says in verse 20. Jesus says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so let me just say here, there's a lot of images that are used in the book of Revelation that leave us confused and leave us wondering what they mean. But here, Jesus is gracious enough to just tell us exactly what those images mean. And so he says this, he says that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. So he explains to John what that means. He says, the seven stars in my right hand represent the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, you're like, what does that mean? What in the world is that talking about? All right, so uh, the short answer is, I don't know, not entirely sure, but let me give you the longer answer and let me give you my opinion on what this means. Okay, so there's actually two primary views that commentators would kind of talk about here. Here's the first one. Some believe that when it says the angels of the churches, that's actually referring to the pastors or the leaders, the senior pastors of those churches. And the reason they believe that is because the Greek word for angels literally just is the word that means messengers. And so they would say, yeah, it's not actually talking about angels, it's talking about the pastors. It's a letter to the pastor. Um, so some people would, would say that. Now here's the problem with that. All right, the problem is that the Greek word that's used here for angel is nowhere else in the New Testament or in the Bible used to speak of pastors or church leaders. But it's almost always used to talk about angelic heavenly beings, okay? So what's the other view? Well, here's the second one. The other view is that this is telling us that each church actually is assigned an angel, a heavenly being that's like a guardian somehow given for the provision of each church, that each church or each region has some angel that's assigned to it. Now, let me just tell you, that's actually my opinion. That's actually my opinion. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking. You're thinking, this sermon was already pretty trippy. Now it's even getting more trippy. And listen, here's what I want you to get. I think that what we're glimpsing here is, is that we are, we are getting the idea that there are whole structures of reality that we are unaware of, and that are unseen to us, that are at work and are under the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. In fact, you notice he says that these seven, these seven stars are in his right hand. Do you notice that? What does that mean? Well, it means that they are under his authority. And, and listen, for those of us who follow Christ, for those of us who are Christ followers, Christians, I think this reminds us that there are things that are beyond our perspective that quite honestly, we shouldn't be embarrassed about and we shouldn't deny. Um, I, now, that, I don't think that means that we should get weird about it. I don't think that means that we should pray to the angels or try to figure out everything. I just think that the Bible tells us enough to know that this stuff is real and not so much that we can say that we completely understand how it works. And I think what this passage is doing is it's revealing to us that when you pull back the curtain, right, Re Revelation, when you unveil uh, that there's going to be stuff behind the scenes that, that man, that, that we don't necessarily see in our immediate assessment of things. I actually love the way one commentator put it, a guy by the name of Daryl Johnson. He wrote a phenomenal commentary on the book of Revelation called Discipleship on the Edge. If you're looking for a good resource on that, it's a great one. He said this, he said, the foundational conviction of Revelation is that things are not as they seem, or more exactly, things are not only as they seem. John is convinced as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ that there is more to reality than meets the unaided senses. John would say to us something like the following. 
John would say, look around you. Take in all the data you can with your eyes. Listen around you. Take in all the data you can with your ears. Smell, touch, taste. Take in all the data you can gather with your five senses. And then, and then realize, as I did, in the prison, uh, on the prison island of Patmos, that there is more to what we call life than what we know with our unaided senses and intellect and emotions. And I love, what, I love the way he says that. There's more. There's more to this present moment than we can know with our unaided senses. It doesn't mean that, those, that the things that we see and taste and aren't real. It just means there's more, right? There's, there's more to the flow of human history than we know with our unaided intellect and emotions. Now, can I just say again, and again, this might, for some of you, this might sound so strange, but I believe very, very strongly that this is also true in our current circumstance, that behind all we're experiencing right now, behind all that we're seeing right now, that there are aspects unseen and there are spiritual forces at play that are entirely unknown to us that play into all of this. I believe that. I think that's why the book of Ephesians tells us that our battle is not merely against flesh and blood. There's a spiritual component to us. Now, again, I don't think that means that we can fully understand it or that we should even try to fully understand it, but I think that it's a mistake. And biblically, I'll tell you, it's a huge mistake to ignore or deny that this is a piece of the reality of what's happening behind the scenes. And so we see that. We see that in this passage. There's more going on behind the scenes. So the seven stars are these seven angels, all right? And then he goes on, he says this. He says, and also the seven lampstands are the seven churches, are the seven churches. Now, I love this. It's actually really cool if you think about it. All right, I want you to think about a lampstand for a minute. So uh, what is a lampstand? Well, a lampstand is a stand that holds a lamp. And I know, you're like, wow, dude, thanks. That's really profound. And uh, no, but seriously, think about this for a minute, all right? How cool is this? Lampstands, their job is to elevate the light so that it can illuminate the space around it. That's what a lampstand does. And so what is this, what is he saying about the church? You get the imagery, right? So the Bible's gonna say, uh, Jesus actually says about himself that he is the light of the world. And Jesus is the light of the world, that he is a light that shines in the darkness. The Bible's gonna tell us that. So the church then is the people of God who are carriers of that light. Right? The church is where the light of Jesus goes out, it's where the light of Jesus is elevated. And so the church is a lampstand in its own place, in its own location, in its own city, in which the light of Jesus and the love of Jesus is raised up and is spread out over the air. So we have a church in Medina. What's the goal of that? Well, it is to elevate the light of Jesus and his followers of Jesus doing that together so that the light and the love of Jesus can spread across an area. That's the whole picture. It's a beautiful picture. And I want you to catch this though. And here's, I just think this is so cool. So you gotta catch this. Here's what I find so amazing about this passage is in verse 13, it tells us that the resurrected Jesus Christ is where, where is he? Well, look what it says in verse 13. He is among lampstands. He's among them. In other words, where's Jesus at? He's with his church. He is in the midst of his churches. Listen, he's not above looking down. He's not outside looking in. He's right there in the middle. He's in the midst of his churches. Let me just tell you, man, for the first century and for the first century church, and I believe for us as well, for our church, for the church today, this is incredibly and deeply encouraging. 
And the reason is because I think it communicates two very important realities to us about Jesus and about his church. And here's the first thing. I think it reveals to us this. Jesus Christ is alive. He's alive. And he loves his church. He loves his church. Revelation really helps us see that Jesus, it helps us see Jesus as he is right now. And it reveals to us that, you know, Jesus is not like some retired CEO. He, he is the ruler of human history and he is the living leader of his church. He is acutely aware of our situation. And he is in the middle. He is in the midst of his church. He's, 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 he's in the midst of his lampstands. And he is able to lead and protect his church and his mission. And so Jesus is alive. He loves his church. And then secondly, Jesus is alive and he leads his church. He leads his church. It reveals to us that the church is not a museum, or even worse, the church is not a mausoleum to preserve the memory of its like dead and departed founder. And it's not an institution that's free to chart its own course. Right? It's not like we're making this up as we go. But the Bible tells us that, no, Jesus is alive, and he is active in leading his church. And, and it tells us that his church are people who are under his authority and who are commissioned to radiate his life in his, li in his, in his, in his light to the lost world that's around them. In fact, I don't know if you've ever looked into this too much, but I just wanna show you a couple quick, I'm not gonna get too into it, but I just wanna show you real quick what the Bible teaches us about Jesus and his church. Did you know the Bible tells us this, that Jesus is the one who began his church? Matthew 16 tells us, Jesus promises, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The church is Jesus's idea. It's not a man-made thing. Secondly, Jesus leads his church. Uh, whenever the Bible talks about Jesus Christ and his church, it's going to use words like this. It's going to say Jesus is the head of his body, which is the church. Jesus is the, the cornerstone of the temple, which is his church. Jesus is the chief shepherd of his church. Jesus Christ leads his church. We see that here in Revelation as well. Jesus is the one who employs his church on his mission. He gives them the great commission and the great commandment. We've talked about those in prior series, if you're not familiar with that. So he employs the church with his mission. He empowers the church with his Holy Spirit, with his word, with spiritual gifts. And then listen, Revelation is going to tell us that Jesus is the one who can remove a church. And so Jesus is going to say to some of these churches, I will remove your lampstand. I will limit your influence as a church. Jesus is the one who does all of that. Now, I show you all of this because I just want to ask you this. Looking at this list, looking at this list right here, whose opinion... <laughs> should we be pursuing about the church? Well, can I just say this? I don't think Google, I don't think Google reviews, right? I don't think my opinion, I don't think my opinion either. I think the one we should be consulting is Jesus. We should be looking to him because it's his, it's his. And, it's, and he's the one who walks among his lampstands. So you see, I think that's why this series is so important. Uh, I think in, in this series, what we're gonna see is we're gonna see this passage where the resurrected Jesus is among his lampstands, and he is going to speak directly to his church about his desires. He's going to give his review and his direction to his church. I think it's going to be very, very significant for us. And I believe that the message that he gives to these seven churches reveal his authoritative priorities for the church in every age, in every culture, including, for those of you who are part of the Medina East Campus of Grace Church, including our church as well. As well. And so for the next seven weeks, what we're going to do as we're going to look at these seven churches. And here's a couple things I just want you to be thinking about as we, as we do this series. I want you to think about this. If Jesus Christ wrote a letter to the church in America today, what do you think he would write? 
What do you think that he would write? More specifically, if Jesus Christ wrote a letter to the church in Ohio, what do you think he would write? And even more specifically, for those of you who are part of this church, if Jesus Christ wrote a letter to Grace Church, what do you think he would say? Wouldn't it be cool if we had a letter like that, if we had access to something like that? See, and here's what I believe. I think we do, in fact, actually have a letter like that, that Jesus' words to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are as relevant to our church today as they were to the first century churches then. And so, uh, two things, and then we're done. Uh, how can you prepare for this series? This is an introduction. So how can you prepare? All right, so I want to give you a couple of thoughts. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus, or this is all new to you, or maybe you're ready to stand up and clap because you like, yes, this is great. Here, here's two things I want to ask you to do. Number one, would you be open and willing to trade your vision and desires for your church for Jesus' visions and desires for his church. So I'm just asking that maybe you come in with that. Would you be willing to come in to say, yeah, I got preferences, I got desires, I have opinions of what I think the church should be. But would you be willing through this series to say, I, I want to hear what does Jesus have to say kind of about his church? And I think we have to come in with that kind of heart. Um, I love a great book I was reading recently. It's called uh, Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. And he actually said something I thought was really convicting. He said this. He said, there's a simple exercise I walk through with church leaders. He said, first, I have them list all the things that people expect from their church. Okay. He said, they usually list obvious things like a really good service, strong age-specific ministries, certain style, volume, length of singing, well-communicated sermon, conveniences like parking, clean church building, coffee, childcare, et cetera. Right? Those are good things. And he says this. Then I have them list commands that God gave the church in Scripture. He said, usually they mention commands like, love one another as I've loved you. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Make disciples of all nations. Bear one another's burdens, etc. And then he said this, I then asked them, what would upset their people more? If the church didn't provide these things from the first list, or if the church didn't obey the commandments in the second list? That's a really good question. It's a really good question. And I think that part of this series is us coming and saying, we want to be very open <laughs> to what is Jesus's priorities? What does he want for his church? And here's the second thing. I actually would ask that maybe you read Revelation chapter two and three in preparation for each week. And I'm just going to warn you, you're going to read through those. There's going to be some big questions. You're going to have a lot of, uh, some of those might be kind of difficult and challenging to read. But I believe that as you come in, maybe familiar, a little bit familiar with some of those things, and maybe with some questions that you might even have, that might be a great way for us to journey through this series together. You know, we, uh, we talk sometimes about being here at Grace. We talk about being a dangerous church. We want God to make us dangerous for his sake, for, for his, with his love and with his light. And let's be honest with you guys. I believe the most dangerous church is the one who genuinely strives to know and live out Jesus's desires for his church to be a lampstand that raises him high, that raises him high with his priorities and his cares and his concerns. So I'm excited to go through this series together as God continues to make us a dangerous church in those ways. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I want to say thank you. Thank you that you are eternal and that you love us enough to wash our feet and to die on the cross, but that you are in your glory, the first and the last. Lord, in a season like this, I think for some of us, quite honestly, what we need is we need, we need, a, we need a, a stronger vision of who you are. 
Uh, honestly, God, I, I, I pray that you'd help some of us exchange a weak image that we have for the strong image of you, that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you are eternal. Help us to see that, God. And, and I pray that through this series that you would teach us, Lord, would you teach our church, teach us together, Lord, help us know who you are. And for the person who's investigating you and trying to figure out what they believe, God, I pray that you'd use this series to reveal yourself to them as well. And so, Jesus, we want to ask these things. We want to pray them in Christ's name. Amen.